Hey guys, before we get started, we partnered with EasyRx Drug Card to help save you money on your prescription medications here in the U.S. It's free, there's no club to join, just bring the prescription discount card with you the next time you're filling your prescription to see if it can save you some cash. If it does, great, if not, throw it away. There's a link on our show notes where you can download, text, or print your prescription discount card. Give it a shot. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Crime and Coffee Couple. My name's Allison. And my name's Mike. Hello, Mike. Hey, baby girl. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm uh, glad you're home. I'm glad I'm home, too. That's just got weird back. for you to say. Oh, yeah, I did just get back. Okay. From a, a little business trip. Yeah, I was in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, that we actually had a story or two in Knoxville and, um, things were okay out there. Just fine. Just glad to be back. Pretty much spent all day traveling. It feels like had a couple of uh, layovers and such, but, uh, back in the saddle and ready to go, um, all the way to Chicago this weekend. Tomorrow morning. Yes. Cause we're going to go see the Chicago bears play the Houston Texans with, uh, our son. It'll be his first time in soldier field. So that'll be awesome. And, uh, going to go with his uncle and his grandpa who are my brother and dad. So it's going to be awesome. We're very excited. Can't wait. It's going to be a quick trip in and out, in and out. Very uh, early morning flights. Oh, yeah. Like uh, we're talking 6 a.m., 5 a.m. type stuff. Yep. So it's going to be tough. I mean, I just told Cam, I'm like, you're going to be waking up like earlier than you ever have in your life the next three days. <laughs> He's like, no, I've woken up at like two or three for like another flight. I'm like, okay, well. Sure you have, pal. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be pretty early. Um, But that I feel like I haven't seen you because I was on a girl's trip last week. So basically, as I came home, you left. Yeah, we've got a lot of catching up to do. I've been in recovery mode all week because... Yeah. Uh, I'm 43 years old, and apparently I can't hang with the girls anymore. No, no, you're too old for that shit. I'm not meant to be drinking excessive amounts of wine and champagne because it don't play well in my system. Yeah. That's, my uh, anxiety was through the roof. I was just, ugh. <laughs> Thank God I wasn't here then. Jeez. <laughs> you had to, like, talk me off, like, a wall one morning from, like, uh, North Carolina where I was. I'm like, <laughs> I'm so anxious. Now, did you actually cry at all? Um, no, I was this close to bursting into tears Monday morning just because I was super anxious about, you know, the trip's coming to an end. I'm hungover. I feel gross, blah, 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 blah. Then my anxiety was high even at home. I just found out you were leaving because my husband, Mike Mike Pernecki here, That's me. That's me. he's a son of a bitch and he doesn't communicate his travel plans with his wife. You calling my mother a bitch? I said, yeah, apparently I am, but okay. no, I'm not. Okay. It's just you. Yeah, that's called bitch. deflection. That's deflection. Um, So I find out Tuesday morning, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going away for the next three days. I'm like, uh, um, excuse me, what? Do I even sound like that? Yeah, that's oh, in, yeah. <laughs> in my head, that's how you sound. For a couple days. <laughs> I'm like, hello, we have a family. I work full time. Like, yeah, you got it. Don't worry. This happens awesome. like pretty much every time he travels. He's like, well, by the way, I'm leaving. And then I'm scrambling with neighbors to get the kids to school. And you're welcome because otherwise you would just stress about it for weeks and weeks and be like, oh, no, I'm not sure what I'm going to do when you're gone next week. I oh, mean, it's God. amazing to me how you have survived this long. Yeah. Well, I've been doing a pretty damn good job if I say so myself. I just saw a article or a video about a woman who is accused of poisoning her or her husband he had he didn't die but i guess he was getting sick he was getting like stomach issues ulcers whatever yeah and it turned out there were still shots of her like pouring drano into a cup on the kitchen table did she take the pictures or no so apparently he <laughs> set up a camera for surveillance oh. and whether or not so her defense is saying that they just caught her pouring it into a cup because she was going to reduce splashing by pouring it into the cup and then then pouring it down the drain sure makes sense so it, it'll all be telling once you see the full video yeah like if you see her pour it in and then it apparently was in his lemonade right so huh. um you're lucky yeah that i haven't done that or maybe it's a blessing if it happens so yeah you know, i mean <laughs> we're all you out of your misery we're all gonna die someday that's right? true that's true yeah so i'm glad to be back in my routine it just turns out I'm I'm a real homebody, and I've been gone every single weekend of September except for one. Yeah, you have that shirt that says like I like um, uh, true crime and something else, and it I says might... true crime, glass of wine, bed by nine. Well, and no, there's the one where it says like I might like two people or something like that. Oh, I don't know What's about that. that? Yeah, I don't so... think I I don't think I have a shirt that says that. It's uh, I thought so. No, no? Okay. definitely I'm not. But the one says that i got for my birthday i'm like it's more like true crime no wine bed by eight right <laughs> that's um, that's pretty much my best life like what did savannah say on the today show the other day she was like uh what did people are going out at eight o'clock what are you going to a rave exactly who's having dinner at eight o'clock at night yeah 
well, all you young kids listen to this who are like going out at eight o'clock, no. you know, enjoy yourselves. Not me. Enjoy yourselves. More Not power me. to you. Yeah. Well, we just want to say, hey, thank you so much for reviewing us. If you enjoy these episodes, if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or even Amazon Audible, uh, we've gotten like a ton of reviews from Audible and they've been fantastic. I just want to read one here from Rebecca. She said, great couple who tell a great story. Love the banter about your lives as well. Mike, I cannot handle another heartbreaking story that makes you choke up. Already bawling from the details and hearing a man choked up just tips me over the edge. Also can't stop listening either. I don't typically write reviews, but you two are just awesome. Very nice. You always send me the screenshots of them. And as I brush my teeth at four o'clock in the morning, wanting to jump off the edge of a cliff, it puts me back on the right side of the cliff. It really, really does help give us a, a better that sense. Boost. And, yeah, know that there's people out there that, mm-hmm. that, you know, get something out of what we're doing. So thank exactly. you. Exactly. We so very much appreciate it. Yeah. And there was that one prick that said, stop being uh, fake. And I promise you, I'm never fake in this whole show ever, <laughs> unless I'm like being sarcastic or something like i've never ever once been fake and i never will be fake because it takes too much planning and stuff i'm not a planner i just do stuff yeah you're definitely not a planner um and side note that one person had left a review saying that we act like we're perfect parents well i'm missing my son's 14th birthday because it's tomorrow first time ever that i haven't been with him on his well, birthday hey at least you got him a birthday cake today yeah so his, that's just the thing the day before his birthday i forgot to get him the cake <laughs> so and to, uh, let's let's tell the folks at home uh, what they're listening you said okay mike when you're with cameron you want to make sure you get him a cake his day of his birthday and i'm like allison i'm his father like i know i'm don't worry he's gonna have a great birthday and so i come home today the day before his birthday and i was like so did you get a cake for him and she's like uh, um Ew. we had a whole birthday <laughs> meal planned for him like yeah. he loves steak and potatoes blah 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 but forgot the cake so i had to take a skinny cow ice cream bar and stick two candles in it so boom in your face we're not perfect parents yeah and there's the proof right so hey uh, thanks a lot for those reviews yes. we appreciate much it. much appreciated and and i also wanted to say um we also appreciate the uh story ideas because oh, yeah. today's episode is an idea from one of our listeners yeah shall we get into it very much appreciated yes we should and this story is the disappearance of susan powell it sounds simple but there's a lot of layers to the story it's Mm. like a dirty smelly rotting onion and as you peel away each layer it only gets worse i don't think i like that so there's more to it than just the title yeah so i would would imagine we'll, we'll get into this i would imagine there's at least a podcast worth of details yes lots of details but i'm saying it's not just that there's more more devastation to it okay so this story was a suggestion from one of our listen listeners i'm having a really hard time here my apologies so our listener is Haley, and Haley, we so appreciate you and um, your suggestions. So on December 7th, 2009, it was a Monday. And when Josh and Powell, I'm sorry, Josh Powell and his wife, Susan, didn't show up for work, co-workers began to worry. Their worry only grew when they also discovered that their sons, four-year-old Charlie and two-year-old Brayden, hadn't been dropped off at daycare, as they always are. You know, if the family says they're going on vacation, it's all arranged. There's never those random days that the kids just just don't get dropped off. Right. And you might hear from them later and say, oh, sorry, we're running late or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to say next police headed to the Powell house to start their investigation. So they started their investigation because the daycare couldn't get a hold of the parents. So they eventually called Josh's mom and sister. So they're like, hey, we can't get a hold of Josh and Susan and the kids didn't get dropped off at school. So the sister's mind went straight to carbon monoxide poisoning. Jeez. She's like, I, what else could it be? Did they live in a city or something? Or? They lived in Utah. Okay. But no, they were in the suburbs, it looked like. And so they called the police. They let them know, hey, we're worried about carbon monoxide. So the police come to the house. They bust a window because at that point, it's an emergency if if it's potentially they could save them. Yeah. So that's how they started the investigation. While the police were still at the house, Josh came home with the two kids, Charlie and Brayden. But Susan was not with him. Where the hell is Susan? So he explained that he had taken the boys camping and that 28-year-old Susan had stayed home. And there's nothing weird, obviously, about father and son time in the great outdoors. But on further conversation, Josh explained that they had left to go camping in the middle of the night. Hmm. And on top of that, it was the middle of a blizzard. (laughs) So what was going on? Yeah, something's up. Something is up. So we're going to start at the beginning. So Susan Cox was born on October 16th, 1981 in New Mexico. A couple years uh, younger than us. Yeah, two years younger than us. Um, She was raised in 
Pal- How did I say that town in um, Washington? Um, why don't you just try to say it, and I'll try to see if I can remember how you were, she was saying it about 20 times before we get on the air. It's here. like I have like a mini stroke try when it. I go to pronounce Palio Paliope. No, you, that's not what you were saying. What was I saying? Palope? Palope? Paliope? Can we Paliope? pause this real quick? So we're going to get a little help from Google here. Puyallup. So a little closer to the microphone, if you could. Puyallup. Okay, that's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not good with. Wow, this. Wow, she sounded just like you. <laughs> I'm not good with this technology that's thing. Okay. Puyallup. Puyallup. So it's Puyallup, Washington. So at age 18, while she was studying cosmetology, she met Josh Powell. They were both devout members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and they were enrolled in Institute of Religion course. That was going to be one of my questions. Anytime I hear anybody's from Utah, I wonder mm-hmm. if they're Mormon. And yeah, what just, percentage just of Utah is Mormon? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know. So Josh was hosting a dinner for the course, and Susan was attending. And within days, Josh proposed. Wow. It sounds like they knew of each other, but didn't really know each other. So very, very quick. Probably the same community, and yeah, got to know families or something. But still, within days. He proposed. That's pretty quick, yeah. On April 6, 2001, the couple was married at the LDS Portland, Oregon Temple six months after meeting. At the time, Susan was 18 and Josh was 25. This, like, sounds familiar for some reason. It's very... I knew the case. Okay. I, I knew of the case. That's how, like, shocking it all was. It To me, it was the circumstances. This guy comes home and just says, oh, my wife's not here. I took the kids camping. It's like, uh, what? Yeah. So... Uh, just real quick, statewide, Mormons count for nearly 62% of Utah's 3.1 million residents. Well, there you go. So more than half. So they were young when they got married. And at the time they did, the couple moved in with Josh's father, Stephen, in the South Hill area near that town in Washington, because I'm I'm an idiot. Well, I mean, yes, it's okay. Puyallup. Puyallup. Look at at me. So the living situation was very disturbing for Susan because Stephen frequently made inappropriate advances on her. He regularly stole her underwear and secretly filmed her until he ended up confessing his obsession to her in 2003. Oh, what a creep. Yeah. Huh. So it was later discovered that Stephen started documenting his obsessions via journals. There ended up being 17 spiral-bound notebooks Whoa. starting in January of 2003. 17 spiral-bound. So like 17. I'm picturing like a five-star notebook like mm-hmm. filled out completely. Filled. 17 of them. 17. I don't know if I've ever written that many words in my life. Uh, Like, that's a lot. pretty astounding. Holy smokes. So these journals prove that his obsession was far beyond just fantasy. The journals detailed that Stephen had gone through Susan's possessions. He had taken her underwear, so that's how we knew, for masturbatory purposes, stealing his daughter-in-law's underwear. Yeah, that's gross. And had even slid a mirror under her bathroom door so that he could try to watch her. Oh my gosh. He he wrote, I have never lusted for a woman as I have for Susan. Ugh. Stephen went as far as buying a new house in case Susan decided to leave his son Josh for him. He There was a 31-year age difference between Stephen and Susan, and Stephen wondered if this was the factor that was keeping Susan from him. Not the fact that, he, you know, she was married to his son, yeah. but it was a 31-year age difference. Well, no, that's all it could be. And then he was clipping newspaper articles about how love can span through the decades or whatever, and that age, you know, leaving them for matter, her. Matter. Or, uh, like, did he show her or no? Uh, no, this was all found later on. Okay. So I don't know that she saw these journals. In the journals, Stephen questioned his behavior and wondered if he was a sociopath. He says, "I, I mean, who looks under a bathroom door with a mirror?" Yeah, I mean, that's definitely creep material. Um, you know, and he's an older guy that's into this younger girl. It's not completely, like, it's not like his daughter. So, you know, that's 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 good. No, but you'll see he's absolutely disgusting human being. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter how he looks. Yeah, No, I'm not okay. I'm not talking about his looks. Okay. Just, I'm talking, you're going to find out how worse. just disgusting yeah. he is. Okay, well, so far I'm and saying it's... beyond, it's, I, I like that you're trying to side with him, but... No, it, no I, siding. He stole his daughter's... Our daughter-in-law's underwear. Oh, like you've never stolen my underwear and masturbated with it? Um, you're not my my daughter-in-law. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're my husband. Okay. And no, I've never stolen your underwear and, and done those things. That's two shows in a row. I hope your parents are listening. <laughs> your nasty-ass boxers. Yes. 
with skid marks in them, probably. <laughs> um, so the diaries included photos of Susan. They described how he secretly filmed her. The entries suddenly stopped shortly before Susan's disappearance, and the journals offered no clues as to what could have happened to her. In June of 2012, 62-year-old Stephen began serving a two-and-a-half-year sentence for charges of child pornography oh, and gosh. voyeurism. Stephen had secretly filmed young neighborhood girls from a bedroom window as they bathed and used the restroom. Oh, and I, I have more information on that later in the story, but this is the kind of guy we're dealing with. Okay. He's disgusting. Hey, you know, I, I try to come up with a... I look at both sides mm-hmm. through an equal lens. So yeah. that's why I was saying things earlier. Not trying to defend anybody just, but now he's officially off the list. Both yeah. sides of this picture are bad. Okay. So he had initially been accused of acts of voyeurism against Susan, but then it says here, it couldn't be proven that she was unaware of the filming, but it did say he documented in his journals that he secretly filmed her. So I don't know how that went down. It's pretty damning. Yeah, I, I mean, would say so. I would imagine maybe Susan was like, okay, like dropping the charge. Who knows? I don't know. No, Susan was oh, missing gone, at this right. point. Yeah. So in 2004, Josh and Susan moved away from Stephen and headed to West Valley City, Utah. During the early years of their relationship, Susan was completely unaware of Josh's ability for his possessiveness. So he was a good actor. I was actually telling my coworkers about this case today, and they were like, how, how could he uh, like hide so well? And I said, some people can really hide their freak flag. Yeah. So he did. So after Susan's disappearance, Josh's ex-girlfriend, Catherine Everett, came forward to tell her story. Apparently, she's watching the news about the disappearance, and he, she's like, oh, my gosh, I got away from this madman. So the two lived together in Seattle while Josh was attending the University of Washington. He was extremely controlling of Catherine. He wouldn't allow her to see her family unless he was with her. You know, one of those controllers, isolators, they don't want anyone to, you know, be away from them. If there's like two things I can't stand in a man, it's that that obviously the sexual, uh, you know, assault and abduction and all that stuff and then number two is the controlling thing like especially like we're so much stronger physically than women and sometimes like the guys that are just like beating down their women mentally Mm -hmm. and you know socially and stuff like that's just despicable well it just goes to show they're they're small people small people thank you yeah mentally small She eventually got away and left while Josh was in class. She went to see a friend in Utah and broke up with Josh over the phone. So she left the Seattle area, escaped basically to Utah and broke up with him from afar. Yeah. And that's really the only way you can get away from those guys. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it'd be like, you know, try to talk you into it and like, yeah, manipulative and being like, no, no, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. And I'm sure they did that 25 times. Probably. So Susan and Josh Powell appeared to be living a wholesome life. Susan worked full time as a broker at Wells Fargo and the family lived in, like I said, West Valley City, Utah. But at the time, Susan was very busy. She was distracted. She worked full time as a broker while Josh was between jobs. It seems like he was often between jobs. She gave birth to Charles in 2005 and then Brayden in 2007. The marriage began to show cracks as Josh's lavish spending became apparent. Oh, good. Be between jobs Mm -hmm. and have some lavish spending. Good job, asshole. And he sided with his father when the topic of Stephen's obsessions were discussed. I mean, come on. Like, yeah. your your wife has to be your number one thing in your life. Mm-hmm. Or and just like wives, your husband has to be your number one thing. Above your children, above everything else. You know, not necessarily that you love them more or whatever. Just like, you have to put them first because that's what comes first. And if you're starting to take the side of your father who's looking up the skirt and stealing your wife's underwear, like, that's weird, man. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting. Very disturbing relationship. So in 2007, Josh declared bankruptcy with more than $200,000 in debts. In 2008, Susan wrote a, um, wrote a secret will that stated that Josh was threatening to leave the country and sue her or sue her if she divorced him. So he was definitely making threats yeah. when there was apparent cracks in the relationship and he worried she was going to flee. On Saturday, June 28, 2008, Susan wrote a letter addressed to the family and friends warning them of Josh. She also wrote that if she dies, and in quotes, it may not be an accident, even if it may look like one. Wow. Right. That sucks. Poor thing. I know. The she's, poor girl. She, you know, she's probably dedicated to her husband and just knows, okay, we're going to try to work this out. 
And unfortunately, we know this is probably not going to go very well. I honestly think it was probably more with the fact that she worried about what he was capable of doing if she did leave and protecting her children. Because, you know, when you're a mom, the safety of your children is the most important thing. Yeah. So Susan wrote this letter and then kept it in a safe deposit box that only she had access to. Well, then what good is it? Well, I guess if something did happen to her, someone would Uh, get into it. Maybe she gave her mom a key. I don't know. Yeah, got it. The very next day, which was Tuesday, July 29th, 2008, Susan made a video recording of herself, and I actually watched it. She was documenting her family's assets in case anything happened to her or all of them. And it was just sad to watch. She was like such a sweet girl. And you could tell like she was a good mom because the kids are like running in the background in the film and just your typical mom like, oh, be careful of that. All right, I'm going over here. And well, this person existed and mm-hmm. was happy and had happy children. And, and uh, it was a life was their was, mother. Yeah, and, part of this life, you know, just basically saying, OK, we've got this. These are the earrings. And, you know, just just in case something happened to her. So it's like she anticipated this. You just wonder what she was going through mentally. Mm-hmm. Poor thing. And she basically said she was doing it in case anything happened to her or all of them and less than 500 days later she went missing so her premonition was right it's a long time afterwards so it, I mean, it is. she's been living with this for a long time she has and like even before that you know to get to the point where you're actually writing something down it's mm-hmm. probably years before that of course it's not like you just wake up one day feeling threatened like i'm gonna put this letter in. i'm yeah. sure it'd been years of it yeah we've all been threatened a little bit so on december 6 2009 susan took charlie and Braden to church a neighbor dropped by in the afternoon and this would be the last person outside the family to see susan she left about 5 p.m the neighbor did and susan mentioned that she was going to lay down for a nap at 2.29 p.m. that earlier that day, Susan called her friend, and this was the last call she made or received on her cell phone. At 5 p.m., Josh said he was going to take the boys sledding, and at 8.30 p.m., a neighbor saw Josh come home and pull into the garage. At 11.45 p.m. that night, a neighbor heard a car alarm coming from inside their closed garage. They noticed that all the lights of the house were out. So those were basically the activities and goings on right before her disappearance. Okay. All the clues we have. Mm -hmm. So sometime between midnight and 12.30 a.m. in the early morning hours of Monday, December 7th, 2009, Josh said he left his home with four-year-old Charlie and two-year-old Brayden to go camping at Simpson Springs Campground in a remote area of Utah's West Desert. In a blizzard. Yes. Got it. He claimed that at the time, Susan was at home sleeping, and in my head, I'm like, it's Sunday night, a work night at midnight. Who isn't sleeping? Well, that worked for him because he doesn't work. He do- He was working at the oh, time. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the drive to the campground would have taken close to two hours, meaning Josh and the boys would have arrived around 2.30 a.m. And the temperatures were well below freezing that night. And it just makes zero sense. Zero sense. Yeah. Like, it was mind-boggling. And that's why I remember this story. Okay. Because the the circumstances. You're like, none of it is like, and you're like, no, no, I, I don't buy that at all. You're, you're looking at this guy saying this, and you're like, you're an effing liar. Like, you couldn't come up with a better alibi? Exactly. So between 9 and 10 a.m. that morning, Charlie and Braden's daycare contacted Josh's mom, Terrica, and his sister, Jennifer Graves. And then this is where it, they discover something is amiss. So again, they were concerned that the boys hadn't been dropped off. They were unable to reach the parents. And that's where the police got involved because Josh's mom and sister were concerned about the carbon monoxide poisoning. And now we loop back to where we started. So when the West Valley police detective Ellis Maxwell arrived at the house at 10 a.m., he noticed two box fans were directed at a wet spot on the carpets. Josh later claimed that Susan had scrubbed a red stain from the carpet the previous day. I'm like, oh, red stain? Hmm. What's (laughs) wet and red? Uh, Wine. Is it? Oh, maybe wine. Wine, sure. Not blood. Right. So the police knew that Susan hadn't shown up for work and was reported missing. Susan's belongings, such as her purse, all of the things she would have taken had she left the house were sitting right there. The other thing that I will mention, and I hate to repeat myself, is they, were, they only had one car. So if Josh had taken the van camping, Susan was left at home with, with no way of leaving unless somebody else picked her up. Yeah. So I, I'm, I do have that in my story later, so I hate to go back and repeat myself. But anyway, so there was no obvious disturbance or sign of forced entry or sign that something bad had happened to Susan at the house outside of Josh. 
is basically what I'm getting at here. So at 5 p.m. that evening, this is when Josh comes home with the two boys. He's greeted by the police who were still at the house figuring out what was going on. And Susan's cell phone was found in his car with her SIM card removed. Police also found a generator, blankets, a gas can, tarps, and a shovel in Josh's car. Josh had no explanation for why he had Susan's cell phone and why the SIM card was removed. And this was his MO throughout the whole thing. He had no idea. His interrogation, not even interrogations, more like interviews. His interviews were positively maddening to watch. Because you just know he's guilty the whole time. And he's such a fucking asshole. And I will get more into that when I get to that point. But it was you wanted to like reach through the screen and punch him and donkey kick him right in the face. Yeah. That's that's my feeling anyway. I'm picturing drowning. Oh, so Josh was immediately taken to the West Valley City Police Department and questioned. While questioned, police asked Josh why he hadn't answered his cell phone, and he explained that he was trying to conserve the battery since he didn't have a charger with him. At the time he was saying this, police noticed that his phone was actively plugged in to the charger on the center console of his car. Nothing this man says makes a lick of sense. Well, the cops know they have their guy. I mean, cops that are worth any salt are like, okay, this is definitely the guy. So here's the problem. Without a body, the Salt Lake County DA refused to file charges against any member of the Powell family in connection with Susan's disappearance. Sure. I, I can see that. I mean, you need, you, it's innocent until proven guilty just because all these things he says he doesn't know, mm-hmm. you know, until he says, yes, I did it, then, then he's... You know, you can arrest him. So during the interview, they started out talking and his main point of interest at the start of the talk was that the police had broken his window. And why did they break the window? Because his sister had a key to the house. It's like, dude, they thought you were dead with your family inside. And all your 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 wife is gone. You're telling us you don't know where she is. And all you care about is a broken window. Yeah. And so he played dumb during the whole time. And it was almost like he was drugged or something. That's how disinterested he was. Hmm. So the the um, police officer would say, so Josh, when did you guys get married? And he'd make this like awkward pause where it's like you wondered, is did he hear me? Is he going to answer? <laughs> like, do you hear me, buddy? And yeah. then finally, he'd like be like, well, um, I, I feel like I feel like it was 2000. <laughs> But I don't know. And I know because I'm doing the research that it wasn't 2000. It was 2001 that they got married. Yeah, you're not an outsider. Like, you were there, and this is a date you should know. He knew nothing. Like, are you okay? Yeah, you having a heart attack or a stroke? You would have thought, instead of them asking questions about his wife, that they were asking questions about the neighbor that lived, like, kitty corner around the block. Yeah. This was, like, not somebody he knew. Right. That was, like, his MO throughout this whole thing. And it was just so frustrating because you knew without a shred of a doubt that he did this. Just got to get him. Yeah. So then police speak with four-year-old Charlie, who confirmed that they did go camping, though said that his mom went with them but didn't come back with them. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. However, there were cracks. He's a four-year-old. Yeah, you He's can't a baby. Really, right. So he said definite damning things, but then he would say something like, and we took an airplane there. Yeah. And they know that they didn't. <laughs> right. So You're you like, can't. Well, how much can we put in The this? reliability wasn't there. You're not going to have him on the witness stand. No. And then a few weeks later, Charlie's teacher also came forward after Charlie told her that his mom was dead. Specifically, my mom is dead. Well, that's interesting. And, you know, who knows if that's something he heard or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, kids can, you know, spin stories. Right. Uh, there was a story when I was in third grade that there was a bat on the playground. And we're sitting at dinner and um, my mom's asking, oh, what did everybody do? And my sister, who's like five years younger, was like, there was a bat at my school. <laughs> and that's why I was like, she's lying. It's and my, my mom's school. like, she's not lying. She's using her imagination. You're like, well, technically, she's lying. <laughs> so that's the point. You know, he's a four-year-old. They have like, you know, big imaginations. They're also hearing the things that people are saying around them. Right. And taking pieces of those. So they really couldn't go with what he was saying. So Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy Cox, reported that while Charlie was at daycare, he also drew a picture of a van with three people inside. He told daycare workers, mommy was in the trunk. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So on Tuesday, December 8th, 2009 at 11 a.m., Josh called Susan's dad, Chuck, to tell him that Susan was missing. So it's like the next day. I, it's unbelievable. And police wanted to question him again. At 1245, he was interviewed by the same detective that was at the house, Ellis Maxwell. And Josh was just like sniffling through the interview. This is where I was telling you about parts of the interview. His His demeanor was actually hostile mm-hmm. again he was focused on that window and the detective kept saying like buddy we're just in here talking to you we're trying to help you yeah why we're, do you get what are you getting so worked up for we're trying to find your wife and he kept saying don't you want to find your wife yeah it was very very strange and bizarre so he was also upset and he continued to look at his hands throughout the interview he's like because you people are asking me what's what's wrong with my hands i have cuts on my hands And he was, you know, of course, they're looking at his hands. They could be defensive wounds. And he kept saying that it was from his dry skin and working. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. So towards the end of the interview, another detective entered the room and told him that a story just wasn't adding up. It was kind of like the good cop, bad cop. Yeah. And his rights were later read and he was told he would be detained, though he was let go later in the day. And I will give you the spoiler that he was never ever arrested in relation to susan's disappearance what so but there's a lot more to this story holy smokes like we're only at the like tip of the iceberg here okay so police seized powell's minivan again the only car that the family owned and this prompted josh to rent a car from the salt lake city international airport he drove 800 miles he returned the car two days later During his trip, he purchased a cell phone and activated it in Tremonton, Utah, near the Utah-Idaho border. So he's doing some very shady things here. On Wednesday, December 9th, police executed a search warrant for the Powell house. They removed boxes, bags, and a computer. Police found Susan's blood in the house, on the carpet, as well as blood from an unknown male contributor. So her blood is there. Okay. I don't get this. Well, it just, I mean, her blood's there, but is it with his, you know? Oh, well, maybe he didn't bleed. Right. I mean, he had some scratches on his hands, but perhaps yeah. it didn't go to the carpet or anywhere else. The unknown male contributor is weird. That's that's kind of a Well, piece. there's, uh, we'll get more into I'm that. I'm sure. Yes. Um, so then um, they also found life insurance policies for $1.5 million. They also found the letter from Susan in her safe deposit box. No, like, good job, Susan. Mm-hmm. And it basically said, I have been in extreme marital stress. And like we said, it didn't just happen. It was for three to four years at this point. Poor thing. She said, for mine and my children's safety, I feel that I need to have a paper trail. He has threatened to skip the country and told me that if if we divorce, there will be lawyers. So he was throwing around a lot of threats, threatening to take the kids, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, she was trying to cover herself. And she probably thinks he's capable of anything. So it's like, well, I've made my bed. I'm going to lie in it. And, mm-hmm. and you know, really just protect my kids. Right. And police also discovered that Josh had liquidated Susan's IRA. The next day, police searched the campground where Josh reportedly camped, but there was absolutely no evidence that camping had been done there. So again, didn't matter. Where's didn't the campfire? Where's the generator? Mm-hmm. You know, the the heat spot from the generator you put down. And so, in the midst of their searching, they they were interrupted by yet again another snowstorm. So, just kind of further solidifying the fact that there's no way he was out here camping. Yeah, like at the, two a.m. with a two and a four year old. These are all like good good little clues, but it's like not the big one, the smoking gun. Yeah, yeah, you, know, you need the body, you need something. Hmm. So on Saturday the 12th, Susan's family and friends, including Josh, gathered outside the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They sang hymns. They prayed. They began a 24-hour fast in hopes of Susan's safe return. Josh was seen tearing or tearing up, I should say, though he didn't speak at the event. Chuck, Susan's dad, voiced his concern about the focus on his son-in-law. So at this point in time, you know, they're... They're trying to get their bearings. This is only days since their daughter disappeared. Yeah, you know, they're a community of God-fearing men and women mm-hmm. and just trying to, you know, come together. Be like, no, there's no way, you know, the loving husband would do this. Right. At least that's what you want to think. That's what you're hoping. As a father. Yeah. When a news reporter interviewed Josh and asked him why he hadn't called in to work on Monday, again, another video I watched where I wanted to donkey kick him in his <laughs> ugly face. Um, he And that Susan was noted to be missing. He basically said, because they're like, Josh, you work. Why would you have taken the kids camping on a Sunday? He goes, well, uh, I thought it was, um, I thought it was Saturday. <laughs> and again, that like 
pausing, drawn out, flat. Did they like? Did they say he was always like that, or was that? Definitely I don't different? know what his personality was was yeah, like. Probably before. not a lot of videos with him in a police station before he did this. I would imagine he wasn't a very swell guy. Hence, sure. Susan fearing her life. Yeah, and that's it. So the guy reiterated. He's like, so wait, when you left, you thought it was Saturday? He's like, yeah, I thought it was Saturday. <laughs> They're like, okay, there's nothing else. And then I can nothing else. <laughs> yeah. That was it. And just like this, like his, oh, ugh, awful. So as the week went on and the police interviews with Josh continued, Josh hired a lawyer. Police publicly announced that Josh was a barrier to police efforts to find Susan. On Friday, December 18th, Josh and the boys headed to stay with his dad, Stephen, you know, the lovely Stephen in Washington for the holidays. And while there, they also held a vigil for Susan. After the new year on January 6, 2010, Josh and his brother Michael made a 13-hour drive back to Utah to pack up the Powell house. And in the meantime, Josh was fired from his job. I guess he just probably left, didn't tell them anything. Well, yeah, he just wanted to get paid as much as he could. And he already cashed out his dead wife's IRA. So mm-hmm. he's got plenty of cash and life insurance probably coming to him. So his plan was to rent out their own home and go back to stay with his family in Washington. Eventually, police got a warrant to search Josh's minivan, which was the car he drove the night Susan disappeared. Um, I'm not entirely sure what they found in there in terms of if there was blood. We know they found the supplies in her phone and stuff like that, but I didn't read that they found blood in the car. Must not have been enough. Mm -hmm. By February, it was clear that Susan's family started to believe that Josh was guilty. Okay. So So how many months later is that? So she disappeared in, where did the story, December. Okay. In December, and this is February. Gotcha. So um, they spoke with the public about Susan's eventual plans to leave Josh and the fact that he was controlling and had in the past been physically abusive. Ah. So now all of a sudden they're being vocal about their distrust of him. Got it. So when the Powell's neighbors distributed missing person flyers and placed ribbons around town in Susan's honors or in honor, Josh got mad and said they were upsetting the children. So had he actually been a concerned husband with a missing wife, he would have been going with the kids and passing out ribbons. Your mom, you know, we're hoping she comes home and... It was the opposite reaction. Yeah, I mean, these are little kids. They'll they'll be fine with whatever you do. You know, and their they'll... mom existed. Right. She's not there. Right. It's not like something you can sweep under the rug. Mm-hmm. So at the one year anniversary of Susan's disappearance, Josh and his dad Stephen made the claim that C- Susan ran away with a man named Stephen Kocher, a man who went missing in Utah in December of two thousand nine, right around the time that Susan did. The two claim that they likely ran off to Brazil, where Kocher served an LDS mission with the intent of starting a new life together. Not surprisingly, there were absolute, there was no evidence to back up these claims. Right. I mean, he's just grasping for straws here. <laughs> I'm surprised that even has any form of sense mm-hmm. at this point. And in 2011, Josh and Steven announced that they were planning to post parts of St- uh, Susan's teenage journals online. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> This was your wife who you had nothing to do with her disappearance. Why would you try to do that to her? You're clearly trying to make her look bad. Yeah. That's odd. And that same year, anti-harassment orders were drawn up between Josh and Susan's dad, Chuck. The two had an altercation at a Lowe's, and they were required to stay more than 500 feet apart from each other. So things are getting ugly between the two families. Yeah, slowly but surely. Yeah, obviously. I mean, they're seeing the truth. Right. So in August, police got a search warrant for Stephen Powell's house. This is Josh's dad. They seized his computers, boxes, and bags from the home on September 12, 2011. Stephen was arrested at this point. This was the whole child pornography thing because they found the information within his things. So why was he... I see he was being investigated prior or something? No, they're on to Josh, and Josh is living with his dad. Okay, so there's... So they're basically taking the items from the home because they got a search warrant for his home. So they find that the contents of the computer or whatever it was, photos printed, show child pornography and voyeurism. So this is what he was charged with. So they got a bonus to get Stephen on this stuff. Yeah, and that's where I was saying... So there's also other disturbing things they're finding on Josh's computer they 
found like simulated child porn. So I guess he couldn't be charged with it because it wasn't real. Oh, God. What a freak. And then you wonder like what else he got into with kids and stuff and his own kids and God forbid any kids. I mean, that's just disgusting. And there was also content of bestiality, incest, just yeah. on September 23rd, the Cox family filed to get custody of Charlie and Brayden, which you would anticipate that this was going this way. They want to get this their their grandchildren away from this guy yeah their dad was just found with uh fake child porn on his Mm -hmm. computer how about getting his kids the hell out of his house exactly so a judge also temporarily ruled that josh couldn't post susan journals like he threatened to okay it's like no you can't put your missing wife's teenage journals out for everybody to read read no you cannot right four days later the boys were temporarily placed with susan's parents uh, chuck and judy cox after washington's division of child and family services filed a child welfare action and the coxes began to pursue permanent custody of their grandsons Days before the custody hearing, a website was created by Josh with the help of his family. It claimed that Chuck and Judy were abusive to the boys, but the website ended up being disabled. Huh. I wonder who disabled it. I don't know. Interesting. On February 1st, 2012, a Washington state judge ruled that seven-year-old Charlie and five-year-old Braden would remain with Chuck and Judy due to the findings that Josh demonstrated narcissistic personality traits shown by his inability to admit any wrongdoings. It was also determined that his parenting skills were adequate and he was holding a steady employment at the time. He had no criminal record prior to any of this. And because of this, the court appointed examiner recommended that Josh be allowed supervised visits with his sons several times a week. I mean, they always want to get the original parents back somehow, some way. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that, you know, in, in around the neighborhood. Um, you know, there's certain parents that might not be super fit, but they want to get them with at least one of the parents, you know, if they can in some way, some somehow. So the, I, I can see, you know, if he has a proper parenting, but still, I mean, the guy's got child, like <laughs> video game child porn on his yeah. computer. So ultimately, they're going to be living with their grandparents, but they can see him with a person, okay. with somebody supervising him three days a week. I'd say it's acceptable. Or several times a week, it's said. So on Sunday, February 5th, 2012, a social worker, Elizabeth Griffin, arrived to Josh's trailer with Charlie and Brayden for the supervised visits. So the kids basically, they're getting out of the car. The kids run ahead. Once inside, Josh slammed the door in Griffin's face and would not allow her into the house. (laughs) Good luck getting them back, asshole. So this gets bad. Oh, no. Griffin immediately called 911, and as she tried to get inside, she's pounding on the doors and on the windows. She could hear the kids crying inside. Oh, my God. She smells gasoline. Oh, no. It's the smell was overwhelming to her. She moved her car from the driveway to across the street. That's how worried she was that there was a potential for an explosion. Yeah. So Griffin told the 911 operator what was happening and added, he looked right at me and closed the door. I smell gasoline. He won't let me in. As Griffin was making this call, Josh began to strike his sons in the head and neck with a hatchet. Holy shit. Yes. That is so bad. Oh, my God. I was thinking that he just like was one little nutso and nope. like closed the door on full, her. Full blood. Full oh, flush. Oh, my God. I feel like so bad saying that I could see him having them for one day. Nope. Mm. He then doused their bodies in gasoline and set his rented house on fire, causing an explosion. It was determined that the boys were still alive when the fire started and that they are actually cause of death was carbon monoxide five gallons five gallon cases of gasoline ended up being found on the premises as well as signs that the gas had been poured throughout the house so he had this all planned out before the explosion josh sent his attorney a single line email i'm sorry goodbye when Stephen, Josh's dad, was notified about the deaths while he was in jail, he appeared unconcerned and actually became angry that he was notified. Uh, this is exactly what Josh did when <laughs> they were questioning him yeah, about his wife. That's, it was bizarre. I mean, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Hope did they have? He had another son, right? He did, and a daughter. And I mean, you got to watch out. I mean, so wait, know. we'll go more into oh, that. Great. And then about five months later, on July 3rd, 2012, a mine explorer found that a mine located 30 miles west of where Josh said he was camping had been filled with gas and burned. Okay. So well. this is very possible that 
Josh had put Susan's body here and went back and burned it in the mine. Yeah. This was a week after the court documents indicated that Josh told a woman at a work party that the best place to dispose of a body is down a mine shaft. Like, why are these idiots? This is this like second or third time we've heard something like this, where mm-hmm. the idiot that murdered the person tells somebody exactly how they did it. Exactly. Around this time, emails from Susan to her friends were released. He, like the content of these emails, was saying he is usually rude. He's yelling and barking commands at me. She wrote of wanting to see a marriage counselor, though Josh wanted no part of it. Every moment I step back and take stock of what I'm dealing with, it feels like a never-ending cycle. But I'm too afraid of the consequences: losing my kids, him kidnapping me, divorce, or actions even worse on his part. Mm-hmm. So she she had premonitions that this was all possible and like and they here said, we are like a narcissist can't admit that they're wrong so no. um you know they're less likely to probably seek help because they don't think they're doing anything wrong Mm-mm. in october of 2012 a 13 page report from washington state was released addressing the question of if the murder suicide could have been prevented the west valley city maintained that there were no indications that josh would murder his two sons besides it, murdering his own wife right but even though that wasn't proven, I, I guess they couldn't prove it so what do they say you're innocent until you're proven guilty he was never proven guilty because 99 percent of the time it's usually you know okay and this is the one percent mm-hmm. or less and unfortunately even even it happening once is horrific horrific On Monday, February 11th, 2013, Michael Powell, who is Josh's brother, who many believed helped Josh with Susan's disappearance, killed himself by jumping off a parking garage in Minneapolis. Now, remember they found blood from an unknown person? This could be Michael. Okay. Perhaps Susan got her claws into him and he bled. Right. So whether or not they, I don't believe they ever tested Michael. Well, one of my questions was going to be, does Michael believe his brother? You know, because you said that they he helped him move and all that stuff and well odds are michael was there right now it's pretty obvious that Mm -hmm. yeah and And why would he have committed suicide this family is is effed up (laughs) it's like kill the lineage like i'm i'm I'm, well there's still a sister out there i mean not that okay and And i'm not saying she's done anything no no but it's like it's like you got to look at yourself and be like you know it kind of like when somebody says i've had alcoholism in my family my whole life i'm not going to drink drink a drop of alcohol you know that it's in your system somewhere you know you could become an addict or something like these people in this lineage need to know about the mental health of the past you know that's dangerous so um During previous police interviews, it was discovered that Michael had abandoned a Ford car at an Oregon wrecking yard. When the vehicle was found, it was determined that human remains at one point were in that car. Wow. So it Remains. So somebody that was dead Mm -hmm. was in that car. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. On July 13th, 2015, Stephen Powell was found guilty of possessing child pornography because of his images, so this is his dad. Yeah. Um, because of the images on his computer of t- the two neighborhood girls, ages eight and ten, Ugh. that he had taken from a bedroom window. Yeah, you, know, you hope that it's at least sixteen, seventeen, or something like that. You know, it's just that it, mentally it feels a little bit like more a little okay, like not okay, but like less t- absolutely terrible. But that young is just it's disgusting. <sighs> so I was confused at this point because i was like 2015 they they took the computers years before this so during the initial trial so this is all came to light for me then during the initial trial in 2012 he had been convicted on one count i'm sorry on 14 counts of voyeurism though the child porn charges had been thrown out by a super superior court judge what the hell is that all yes thank you and were reinstated by an appeals court. So on August 21st, 2015, Stephen was sentenced to five years in prison and given credit for the 17 months that he already had served back in 2012. Yeah. He was released in 2017 and died in 2018 of reported natural causes. Good. Perfect. Good riddance, Stephen. Yes. The world is much better off without that piece of shit. 
In October of 2015, a federal judge in Washington state dismissed a lawsuit filed by Chuck and Judy Cox, Susan's parents, who had custody of the boys when all of this happened. They did everything they right. Were everything, safe. In their, everything in their power. They were safe with their grandparents. God. So they were claiming that social workers didn't do enough to protect Charlie and Brayden. In July of 2020, five years later, basically, Washington state awarded Susan's parents $98 million for negligence. I mean, shove it up your ass, basically. Too little, too late. Yeah. That $98 million will never bring their precious grandsons back to life. Right. And I did they settle or did they actually just award them? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Because like to the grandparents, it doesn't matter. You know, they're older and they, it's like. What is the money? Right. I mean, they're I, devastated. They've I can't lost wait to their have, daughter, their, right. their two grandsons. I can't wait to have grandkids. And our kids are only like 14 and 10. Yeah. So. Not even 14 yet. He's well, still 13. In Mike. a couple hours, he'll be 14. So I just can't imagine how that would feel for grandparents that they did everything right. They had their grandkids there. They had mm-hmm. them away from danger. And the state said, no, you know, they did. The state tried to keep the parent in the life and they were trying to do the right thing. They're all trying to do the right thing. And it was supervised. Yeah, exactly. They did <laughs> supervise. Like if you could say you can blame the state if it's like, no, they decided you know, not no supervision. But it was like there was a person behind them. And like, they literally probably walked in the house a step ahead of the woman and he looked her square in the eye and slammed the door right in her face. And not to mention, he could probably just throw her out if he wanted to. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, physically push her out the door. Like, what are we going to do? Start sending cops in with... Like, That's the thing. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't that way. It was just a social worker. Because it happens all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, everywhere. Right. So it's just... it. The story just went from bad to worse. Absolutely. Basically. Mm. So it was a very interesting one. And Haley, we do appreciate you again, you know, giving us the idea to share this story. Did they find Susan's remains? Never. And they looked in the mine and everything? Yeah, I guess maybe the fire was just so bad that it they never could recover it. Like no human remains or anything? They never confirmed to find her body to Mm. this day. And that was in 2009. Yeah. And... So, Stephen, the dad, is dead. Obviously, Josh is dead. Michael Michael is dead. Mm -hmm. He jumped from a a parking garage in Minneapolis. Okay. And the sister, um, no idea what's going on. No idea. There was some talk about her and... Yeah, but people are I, trying to put things together and it's you don't know how much to put into it yeah, yeah. I, I i respect you for not bringing that up mm-hmm. so no you know nobody wants to go on a wild witch hunt or no something. i'm not on a witch hunt for anybody i mean everybody should be a nice person mm-hmm. yeah it was terrible that uh that fire was just like how could you do that to your own kids and the fact that he just started hacking at them with a hatchet oh okay i think we've had enough um, <laughs> I mean, I mean no, I'm just amazed at how horrific this person could be. Yeah. I'm trying to block it out. Yeah. So well, anyway, well. thank you all for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And, and to our Patreons. Yep. Want to give Patreons, special, special our shout patrons. out. Patrons. Patrons. I'll take care of the talking from here on okay, out. I'm just going to be quiet now. Um, I want to thank Colleen, Lily, Karen, Nadine, Allie, Michael, Dominic, Brian, Shannon, Elizabeth, Mandy, uh, Alana, Vivian and Trisha, we've got uh, we're, we're increasing, and we really appreciate. It. And you know why? Because each one of these people get bonus episodes. Bubba bonus. Yeah, we come up with bonus episodes every two weeks. So um, go check out the patron page, Patreon page. It's in the show notes, and you can see what the levels are. And if you get a couple or two or three a, week, a month or whatever, so yeah, new bonus episode every other week. And uh, we'd appreciate you having on. We can get more stuff and up- upgrade our materials and all that. We've had some ringing in my ear the entire time. Yeah, we're trying to get this thing started and our like headphones are buzzing. I'm like, what the hell is going on in this house? I think our headphones are like $6 on special from Amazon. We're holding our microphones because we don't have a microphone holder. Well, the one I bought from Amazon was like $6 and it fell apart. Imagine Living that. in the depths of hell in this place. But hey, we've got the listeners. This is guys. what happens when Mike Pernecki is leading the ship. And did we mentioned that the uh, patreon people are especially beautiful people they are inside especially and we oh and if you're a patron you will notice that we really give you a lot of compliments <laughs> we do yeah we do it's i nice. mean we love you all and yeah. you're all good looking absolutely and, and wonderful because really outside looks it's more about what's on the inside right thank god for me at least because yeah. i have no chance on the outside <laughs> so i mean receding hairline i'm over morbidly obese <laughs> It's all it's all over. You're not morbidly obese. No, just obese. Just obese. Yeah. So hey, thanks a lot for listening. We appreciate it. And uh, until next time. Bye.